Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am your host, Scott Chaloner, and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's programme, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to have Nalin De Silva on the programme alongside me. Um, Nalin is the Managing Director at Flexel Springs Alliance Limited, a UK-based manufacturer of precision springs and wire forms, primarily for the aerospace industry. Um, Nalin, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Not at all. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us, Nalin. And um, the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And considering that today's generation of business leaders is going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your business over the last few months. Yeah, Um Obviously, uh, unprecedented times, as, as we all know, um, for everyone and for all businesses. Um, for us in particular, um, we work primarily, as you, as you kind of mentioned, uh, in the aerospace and defense sector. Um, obviously, sectors that have been hit particularly hard by um, the lack of, lack of travel. Um, so the resulting um, last three months have been um, quiet, um, certainly quieter than uh, we'd have expected and, and hoped for this time of year. Um, and particularly for a year where we had um, quite significant plans for um, growth um, and uh, and development for for the team and for the business, um, we have been lucky in that we've had um, a, a few customers that have um, kept us operational throughout the pandemic and throughout lockdown. Uh, so we did as classed as a, an essential um, manufacturer manufacturer for essential services. Um, we did remain open throughout, um, which has been. Lucky, um, and it's kept us um, positive and hopeful um, for for the months ahead and, and the years ahead, really. Um, but uh, yeah, undoubtedly, it has been uh, it has been tough, and it has been there's been new challenges that we've all had to adapt to, um, both as um, as a team, um, as a business, um, and uh, supporting our customers who are going through um, tough times as well. So an interesting time, um, but equally lessons that, that have been learned and, and taken on board. Um, and I, I suppose having to adapt to things quite quickly um, at short, at short term notice with, with very um, little notice and with, I suppose, very little preparation and, um, and uh, yeah, it, it has been, has been, uh, has been tough, but basically uh, mm. um, we are hopeful for, uh, how things will, will emerge and uh, things we can can turn around in the next few months. And how have you sort of found it in terms of adapting to this new reality in terms of what you've learned from this crisis management experience, if we, if we call it that? Is there anything that managing this crisis has taught you in your capacity, do you think? I think with anything that's unprecedented, it's, um, it's a lot about reassurance. Um, it's uh, primarily reassuring yourself uh, and um, and from a personal perspective it's been um, a challenge to um, not get overwhelmed um, and, and really sort of set the tone um, for for the team uh, and, and certainly for our customers as well um, I think reassurance then spreads to obviously the team and our customers 
um, for the team, particularly at the beginning of lockdown. There, um, as there was for everyone, a lot of um, a lot of um, uh, hesitation, a lot of uh, confusion over the situation. Um, I suppose the, the messages coming from, um, from from government at the beginning, understandably, were um, perhaps uh, a, a little mixed uh, and can kind of could have come across a little bit confusing for for some. Um, so again, with very little information, it was trying to be as reassuring and uh, and, uh, and sort of taking each day and week as it as it came. Um, and equally, then spreading further across to our customers and our suppliers who naturally uh, rely on our um, support as we do on theirs. Um, but also reassuring them that uh, you know we were we were taking measures to to make sure that we were there to support them um, throughout uh, throughout their challenges. Um, which which we did and continue to do so. Um, so I, I think the main thing is uh, it, it's more of a mental challenge rather than anything else. Obviously, there were certainly other challenges, um, but I think mentally for, uh, for particularly for the leadership team and our and our uh, workforce, um, it was uh, it was one to really get our heads around quite quickly mm. uh, and be able to adapt um, to quite quickly changing situations. Um, and remain, yeah, remain positive and, and remain in control uh, as, as much as possible uh, over, over situations that are very that we have very little control over, unfortunately. Mm. And considering that it has been a very mentally taxing time in that sense, and it has thrust the importance of mental health and well-being back into the national mm. discussion, just how important do you think that is in leadership, mental health, both in terms of safeguarding your own and that of those around you, not just in times of difficulty like this, but also in the everyday environment? Absolutely, I think um, I think the the light that the um, the pandemic pandemic has shown on shown on mental life, mental health, sorry, um, whether it's through through business or through education or you know really through all walks of life, um, should um, should really be um, you know really be highlighted. I think the effects um, long term could be you know, quite significant, but equally, I think the importance of mental health. Um, through all walks, um, I think the light that it's shone on that should um, should really be should really be noticed, uh, and hopefully some good will come of that. Um, certainly within uh, business and, and leadership, as I said, yeah, it's, it's, for, for me personally, it was um, learning to take the, the rough with the smooth. Um, you know, it's, uh, there will be good days, good weeks, good months. Uh, equally, there will be uh, less than good days, weeks, and months also. Uh, and I suppose it's learning to kind of have a uh, find a happy medium. Um, throughout that, not get too um, you know, put off by by the bad ones, and equally not get too elated, I suppose, by the good ones. Um, so it's it's finding that that middle ground, really. Um, I think as as all um, you know, all leadership positions um, are is a, is a sort of a a, um, a benchmark, really, for those that um, that look to you. Um, so particularly with our workforce. Um, I did feel a um, responsibility, I suppose, to uh, yeah, to set that tone and, and really um, be the be the basic one others um, that, that they would set their benchmark against. Really um, difficult, obviously, with uh, people either working remotely or, or not having face time, um, you know, with with uh, with the team as much as I would have normally, um, which obviously makes things harder um, with, with people furloughed or working from home, um, for example. But um, again, yeah, it's it's doing as much as you can to, to reassure people 
Um, and I think it, it, having those conversations um, as they developed also in turn you know, had an effect of, of reassuring myself really and from the team. So, um, yeah, I think that, that contact, um, however it's done, um, was important. Uh, not always easy, um, but I think that was that was really the main mm. the main the main takeaway. Yeah. And considering that you mentioned there that you've obviously in your leadership role had to try and reassure other people, but also look into yourself for reassurance. So many say that the role of a leader is to essentially inspire and provide direction, but it can feel a little bit of a lonely place, a leadership role, can't it? When you're the one at the top of the tree running the business and there isn't anybody above you to refer to, as is the as is obviously not the case with employees, for example, who'll be looking to you as their leader for that reassurance when they do need it. So when you do need a bit of inspiration, as well as looking within, where else do you tend to go looking for? all that um it's funny i think it comes it can come from from anywhere it can come from family it can come from um you know your, your children if you're looking that enough to have them uh your partners um i think for me um it, all of the above um but you know really i think it was um yeah having a team that's that's able to adapt and and you know they did really. Um, we had people that have worked worked throughout the lockdown, for example. Um, the feeling of sort of getting on with things, um, you know, not letting customers down, for example. Um, you know, we, we didn't we didn't have a break in production. We didn't we didn't let any of our you know performance metrics drop. Um, orders were done and out on time, and uh, it's been really great to see that you know even in times of uh, struggle, I guess. Um, you know, people are, are keen to get get going and get keep things moving. Really, um, for me, also, I think um, it, it's been reassuring, really, because you know, people want you to people want you to be okay. People want our business to be okay. Our customers, our suppliers. Mm. Um, you know, we we obviously need them. Um, they rely on our support, um, and when it when it comes down to it, it's, it's been really interesting to see that sort of human side of things. Um, you know, our customers generally, um, you know, concerned as to how how we're getting on and um, hopeful that things are okay. Um, so it, it, I think it puts a different spin on a lot of relationships that we had in place with um, customers and, and suppliers that perhaps before would have been more transactional, um, but uh, but less so now. Um, so yeah, I suppose that human um, element has uh, has become more uh, more important and more more cherished. Mm. And I think also there's that recognition of the fact that in leadership roles one is never alone especially in a crisis such as this there are plenty of other people that are in the same boat and we can communicate with each other and learn from each other and really help each other through in that sense absolutely right yeah absolutely i think um i mean you talked about sort of um direction and, and people looking to, to leaders for direction it's, it's particularly difficult i think when um you know, you're you're, you're certainly, or, or less certain of direction yourself. You know, um, obviously we had um, plans for for the year at, at the beginning, and no one saw uh, you know that that we'd be in this sort of situation um, even a few months ago. So all those plans and um, you know and, uh, predictions and and, and strategies and, and projects that we had lined up, obviously, um, all disintegrate quite quickly. Um, so at times there is um, you know very little. 
direction. It's sort of it's sort of day to day and week to week, whereas you're perhaps used to talking about month to month and year to year. Um, but I think again, it's it's knowing that sometimes that's okay. Um, you know, it, it's okay that things don't go to plan. Um, but it's uh, it's how you react to that really, and um, you know, understanding that um, hopefully it's uh, it's it's just a blip in our in our very long um, lifespan and. Um, and and you know things will things will turn around. There'll be a bounce, and, and we'll be back to um, back to those longer term plannings. But yeah, it's okay to look at day to day and and, month, and, and week to week um, for the sake of uh, for the sake of everyone's sanity. I think. <laughs> So mm. we can really do at the moment, isn't it? Considering that we are entering a yeah. very uncertain time and one that will be very key, of course, um, in how the economic recovery eventually pans out. And if we do yeah. just hone in on that a little bit, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, Nalin, um, just what do you feel is on the horizon in the next twelve months for you and for Flexor Springs Alliance in particular? Because um, it is going to be a time where we have to adjust to a new way of living and a new way of working, but Still, we have plans to look forward to. And what is next for you in the business? Yeah, so um, in any given year, around 60 to 70% of our um, of our work is towards the aviation sector. Um, obviously, huge changes that are already happening um, in that sector and, uh, and and will do certainly for the, you know, for the, for the, for the, in the future. Um, we also do supply to um, a range of other safety critical industries. So um, yeah, things like, uh, nuclear, oil and gas, rail, uh, medical. Um, so we are um, obviously caught up in um, you know a difficult time at the moment. But equally, uh, the sectors that we operate in, um, you know, are sectors that um, are not going. Away, you know, they're not going away. They're not going anywhere. Um, there will be a um, there will be a shift um, with with um, with air travel, for example. It's um, it's looking at when essentially. Uh, people are going to be flying again, and uh, and uh, work on on aircraft. Uh, will will sort of start to um, turn around. So, in what shape or form? Um, I suppose that's that's uh, being discussed, and that's uh, that's a little bit up in the air. Um, but equally, it, it is something that will come back, um, as will uh, the work in other other sectors. So, it's learning where our parts um, are going. For example, at the, at the beginning of lockdown. Um, a few of our parts were um, used for ventilation systems, for example. Um, so that work, um, particularly the sort of March-April time, was keeping us reasonably busy. Um, so, yeah, it's learning to adapt. It's learning to um, understand where um, where we fit in, uh, understanding where those um, areas are moving, in which directions they're going. Um, and learning to adapt with that. Um, we're, we're a small enough business in that we can um, be quite um, flexible and quite agile uh, in terms of the directions that we take, um, which yeah, which is a positive for us. Um, I think we're um, if there was a right size of business, I suppose, to be able to um, adapt to to this type of crisis. Um, I feel that uh, we're in that category. Um, so. Yeah, we, we're still positive about the future. Um, again, a lot of it is down to our workforce, and uh, we've, we've done our best to reassure uh, them, as I said, and uh, make sure they're okay, um, because ultimately uh, they are our best asset. Um, and when things do start to um, pick up and, and turn around, uh, whether it's you know this side of the new year or, or not, um, you know obviously we'll need their support and, and help to 
um, to, 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 to tackle that. But um, as I said, um, yeah, we're, we're positive and we're still, um, you know, we're still pr- progressing and, and predicting our forecasts. Perhaps they've been extended a little bit, but um, yeah, we're, we're definitely looking at this as a, um, a short term um, a short term challenge um, and then something to adapt to and, and build from um, moving moving over to the next six to eight months. But um, yeah, remains to be seen, but um, yeah, we're, 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 we're positive. It's nice to hear that, um, of course, the business is positive and let's hope that industry can really use this as a springboard for adaptability and innovation to really sort of hit the ground running as we emerge from this, for sure. Um, there are yeah. still a great many variables um, in this, um, of course. So given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the programme today, uh, Nalin, I think it would be wonderful to catch up in future in the next few months, perhaps, and have you back on the programme with us just to see how those plans are coming to fruition. And we can re- reassess at that point just how far we've come during that time yeah it'd be great yeah i would certainly welcome that it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the program today and most importantly until we do hopefully speak again please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well easy thanks god I was speaking on today's programme to Nalin De Silva, Managing Director at Flexel Springs Alliance Limited. Coming up now on the programme, it's time for my exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During his professional career, he scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. That interview is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and... Goodness me, yeah, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my 
uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans-Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the Health Service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, when you begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital in 
uh, important in a sense to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into, it was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you, you, union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters and 
from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management so you can learn as much from people making mistakes you can learn also from making your own mistakes mm. you can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing today and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again and it, it is important in all of life you learn from your mistakes people will make mistakes uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road. Um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree, where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And so it's just able to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, 
we actually got to find, this is absolutely true, we've got to find a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, well, you were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence, going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child. Although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my my story is a friend of my father. I know the guy's name called Jock Redfern. Unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I have one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was, that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. 
when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front, and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool, and I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games, and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that 
A, he saw when I was at West Ham, and B, obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think, it, <laughs> and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I'd compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um. Well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And, of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we, it was a great time with the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the... Uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my... Uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success that club had. So um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and. Um, uh, Two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was that was a good time. Completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience. 
and I earned a few quid, and I think it pays for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and revered, sort of comes. Maybe, uh, maybe longer. Maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after the finish playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever. It sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing, or managing, or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I, I went into business for twenty years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or mental courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, 
its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.